Chapter 19, Part 7 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer, translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 19, Part 7 Thoroughgoing Skepticism and Thoroughgoing Eschatology. This change was due to the non-fulfillment of the promises made in the discourse at the sending forth of the Twelve. He had thought then that to let loose the final tribulation and so compel the coming of the kingdom. And the cataclysm had not occurred. He had expected it also after the return of the disciples. In Bethsaida, in speaking to the multitude which he had consecrated by the foretaste of the messianic feast, as also to the disciples at the time of their mission, he had turned their thoughts to things to come, and had adjured them to be prepared to suffer with him, to give up their lives, not to be ashamed of him in his humiliation, since otherwise the Son of Man would be ashamed of them when he came in glory. From Mark chapter 8, verse 34, through chapter 9, verse 1. Footnote. Here it is evident also, from the form taken by the prophecy of the sufferings, that the section Mark chapter 8 verse 34 and following cannot possibly come after the revelation at Caesarea Philippi, since in it, it is the thought of the general sufferings which is implied. For the same reason, the predictions of suffering and tribulation in the synoptic apocalypse in Mark chapter 13 cannot be derived from Jesus. End footnote. In leaving Galilee, he abandoned the hope that the final tribulation would begin of itself. If it delays, that means that there is still something to be done, and yet another of the violent must lay violent hands upon the kingdom of God. The movement of repentance had not been sufficient. When, in accordance with his commission, by sending forth the disciples with their message, he hurled the firebrand which should kindle the fiery trials of the last time, the flame went out. He had not succeeded in sending the sword on earth and stirring up the conflict. And until the time of trial had come, the coming of the kingdom and his own manifestation as son of man were impossible. That meant not that the kingdom was not near at hand, but that God had appointed otherwise in regard to the time of trial. He had heard the Lord's prayer in which Jesus and his followers prayed for the coming of the kingdom and at the same time for deliverance from the pyrasmos. The time of trial was not come. Therefore, God in his mercy and omnipotence had eliminated it from the series of eschatological events, and appointed to him, whose commission had been to bring it about, instead to accomplish it in his own person. As he who was to rule over the members of the kingdom in the future age, he was appointed to serve them in the present, to give his life for them, the many, from Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and chapter 14, verse 24, and to make in his own blood the atonement which they would have had to render in the tribulation. The kingdom could not come until the debt which weighed upon the world was discharged. Until then, not only the now living believers, but the chosen of all generations since the beginning of the world wait for their manifestation in glory. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the countless unknown who should come from the east and from the west to sit at tables with them at the messianic feast. From Matthew chapter 8 verse 11. 
the enigmatic poloi for whom jesus dies are those predestined to the kingdom since his death must at least compel the coming of the kingdom footnote weisse and bruno bauer had long ago pointed out how curious it was that jesus in the sayings about his sufferings spoke of many instead of speaking of his own or the believers weisse found in the words the thought that jesus died for the nation as a whole bruno bauer that the for many in the words of jesus was delivered from the view of the later theology of the christian community this explanation is certainly wrong for so soon as the words of jesus come into any kind of contact with early theology the many disappear to give place to the believers in the pauline words of institution the form is my body for you from first corinthians chapter eleven verse twenty four johannes weiss follows in the footsteps of weisse when he interprets the many as the nation he gives however quite a false turn to this interpretation by arguing that the many cannot include the disciples since they quote, who in faith and penitence have received the tidings of the kingdom of god no longer need a special means of deliverance such as this Close quote. they are the chosen to them the kingdom is assured but a ransom a special means of salvation is needful for the mass of the people who in their blindness have incurred the guilt of rejecting the messiah for this grave sin which is nevertheless to some extent excused as due to ignorance there is a unique atoning sacrifice the death of the messiah this theory is based on a distinction of which there is no hint in the teaching of jesus and it takes no account of the predestinarianism which is an integral part of eschatology and which in fact dominated the thoughts of jesus the lord is conscious that he dies only for the elect for others his death can avail nothing not even their own repentance moreover he does not die in order that this one or that one may come into the kingdom of god he provides the atonement in order that the kingdom itself may come until the kingdom comes even the elect cannot possess it End footnote. This thought Jesus found in the prophecies of Isaiah, which spoke of the suffering servant of the Lord. The mysterious description of him who, in his humiliation, was despised and misunderstood, who, nevertheless, bears the guilt of others and afterwards is made manifest in what he has done for them, points, he feels, to himself and since he found it there set down that he must suffer unrecognized and that those for whom he suffered should doubt him his suffering should nay must remain a mystery in that case those who doubted him would not bring condemnation upon themselves he no longer needs to abjure them for their own sakes to be faithful to him and to stand by him even amid reproach and humiliation he can calmly predict to his disciples that they shall all be offended in him and shall flee from mark chapter fourteen verse twenty six and twenty seven he can tell peter who boasts that he will die with him that before the dawn he shall deny him thrice from mark chapter fourteen verses twenty nine through thirty one 
all that is so set down in the scripture they must doubt him but now they shall not lose their blessedness for he bears all sins and transgressions that too is buried in the atonement which he offers therefore also there is no need for them to understand his secret he speaks of it to them without any explanation it is sufficient that they should know why he goes up to jerusalem they on their part are thinking only of the coming transformation of all things as their conversation shows the prospect which he has opened up to them is clear enough the only thing that they do not understand is why he must first die at jerusalem the first time that peter ventured to speak to him about it he had turned on him with cruel harshness had almost cursed him from mark chapter eight verses thirty two and thirty three from that time forward they no longer cared to ask him anything about it the new thought of his own passion has its basis therefore in the authority with which jesus was armed to bring about the beginning of the final tribulation ethically regarded his taking the suffering upon himself is an act of mercy and compassion towards those who would otherwise have had to bear these tribulations and perhaps would not have stood the test historically regarded the thought of his sufferings involves the same lofty treatment both of history and eschatology as was manifested in the identification of the baptist with elias for now he identifies his condemnation and execution which are to take place on natural lines with the predicted pre-messianic tribulations this imperious forcing of eschatology into history is also its destruction its assertion and abandonment at the same time towards passover therefore jesus sets out for jerusalem solely in order to die there footnote one might use it as a principle of division by which to classify the lives of jesus whether they make him go to jerusalem to work or to die here as in so many other places vice's clearness of perception is surprising jesus's journey was according to him a pilgrimage to death not to the passover End footnote. says vreda quote, it is beyond question the opinion of mark that jesus went to jerusalem because he had decided to die it is obvious even from the details of the story Close quote it is therefore a mistake to speak of jesus as teaching in jerusalem he has no intention of doing so as a prophet he foretells in veiled parabolic form the offense which must come from mark chapter twelve verses one through twelve exhorts men to watch for the parousia pictures the nature of the judgment which the son of man shall hold and for the rest thinks only how he can so provoke the pharisees and the rulers that they will be compelled to get rid of him that is why he violently cleanses the temple and attacks the pharisees in the presence of the people with passionate invective from the revelation at caesarea philippi onward all that belongs to the history of jesus in the strict sense are the events which lead up to his death or to put it more accurately the events in which he himself is the sole actor the other things which happen the questions which are laid before him for decision the episodic incidents which occur in those days have nothing to do with the real life of jesus 
since they contribute nothing to the decisive issue but merely form the anecdotic fringes of the real outward and inward event the deliberate bringing down of death upon himself it is in truth surprising that he succeeded in transforming into history this resolve which had its roots in dogma and really dying alone is it not almost unintelligible that his disciples were not involved in his fate not even the disciple who smote with a sword was arrested along with him from mark chapter fourteen verse forty seven peter recognized in the court of the high priest's house as one who had been with jesus the nazarene is allowed to go free for a moment indeed jesus believes that the three are destined to share his fate not from any outward necessity but because they had professed themselves able to suffer the last extremities with him the sons of zebedee when he asked them whether in order to sit at his right hand and his left they are prepared to drink his cup and be baptized with his baptism had declared that they were and thereupon he had predicted that they should do so from mark chapter ten verse thirty eight and thirty nine peter again had that very night in spite of the warning of jesus sworn that he would go even unto death with him from mark chapter fourteen verse thirty and thirty one hence he is conscious of a higher possibility that these three are to go through the trial with him he takes them with him to gethsemane and bids them remain near him and watch with him and since they do not perceive the danger of the hour he adjures them to watch and pray they are to pray that they may not have to pass through the trial since though the spirit is willing the flesh is weak amid his own sore distress he is anxious about them and their capacity to share his trial as they declare their willingness to do so footnote that ye enter not into temptation is the content of the prayer that they are to offer while watching with him End footnote. here also it is once more made clear that for jesus the necessity of his death is grounded in dogma not in external historical facts above the dogmatic eschatological necessity however there stands the omnipotence of god which is bound by no limitations as jesus in the lord's prayer had taught his followers to pray for deliverance from the pyrasmos and as in his fears for the three he bids them pray for the same thing so now he himself prays for deliverance even in this last moment when he knows that the armed band which is coming to arrest him is already on the way literal history does not exist for him only the will of god and this is exalted even above eschatological necessity but how did this exact agreement between the fate of jesus and his predictions come about why did the authorities strike at him only not at his whole following not even at the disciples he was arrested and condemned on account of his messianic claims but how did the high priest know that jesus claimed to be the messiah and why does he put the accusation as a direct question without calling witnesses in support of it why was the attempt first made to bring up a saying about the temple which could be interpreted as blasphemy in order to condemn him on this ground from mark chapter fourteen verses fifty seven through fifty nine 
before that again as is evident from mark's account they had brought up a whole crowd of witnesses in the hope of securing evidence sufficient to justify his condemnation and the attempt had not succeeded it was only after all these attempts had failed that the high priest brought his accusation concerning the messianic claim and he did so without citing the three necessary witnesses why so because he had not got them the condemnation of jesus depended on his own admission that was why they had endeavored to convict him upon other charges footnote as long ago as eighteen eighty h w blebby had emphasized this circumstance as significant the injustice in the trial of jesus consisted according to him in the fact that he was condemned on his own admission without any witnesses being called dahlmann it is true will not admit that this technical error was very serious but the really important point is not whether the condemnation was legal or not it is the significant fact that the high priest called no witnesses why did he not call any this question was obscured for blebby and dahlmann by other problems End footnote. this wholly unintelligible feature of the trial confirms what is evident also from the discourses and attitude of jesus at jerusalem viz that he had not been held by the multitude to be the messiah that the idea of his making such claims had not for a moment occurred to them lay in the fact for them quite beyond the range of possibility therefore he cannot have made a messianic entry according to have brant wellhausen dahlmann and vreda the ovation at the entry had no messianic character whatever it is wholly mistaken as vreda quite rightly remarks to represent matters as if the messianic ovation were forced upon jesus that he accepted it with inner repugnance and in silent passivity for that would involve the supposition that the people had for a moment regarded him as messiah and then afterwards had shown themselves as completely without any suspicion of his messiahship as though they had in the interval drunk of the waters of lethe the exact opposite is true jesus himself made the preparations for the messianic entry its messianic features were due to his arrangements he made a point of riding upon the ass not because he was weary but because he desired that the messianic prophecy of zechariah chapter nine verse nine should be secretly fulfilled the entry is therefore a messianic act on the part of jesus an action in which his consciousness of his office breaks through as it did at the sending forth of the disciples in the explanation that the baptist was elias and in the feeding of the multitude but others can have had no suspicion of his messianic significance of that which was going on before their eyes the entry into jerusalem was therefore messianic for jesus but not messianic for the people but what was he for the people here vreda's theory that he was a teacher again refutes itself in the triumphal entry there is more than the ovation offered to the teacher the jubilations have reference to him who is to come it is to him that the acclamations are offered and because of him that the people rejoice in the nearness of the kingdom as in mark the cries of jubilation show for here as dahlmann rightly remarks there is actually no mention of the messiah 
Jesus, therefore, made his entry into Jerusalem as the prophet, as Elias. That is confirmed by Matthew, chapter 21, verse 11, although Matthew gives a messianic coloring to the entry itself by bringing in the acclamation in which he was designated the son of David, just as, conversely, he reports the Baptist's question rightly and introduces it wrongly by making the Baptist hear of the works of the Christ. Was Mark conscious, one wonders, that it was not a messianic entry that he was reporting? We do not know. It is not inherently impossible that, as Vreda asserts, quote, he had no real view concerning the historical life of Jesus, close quote, did not know whether Jesus was recognized as Messiah, and took no interest in the question from an historical point of view. Fortunately for us, for that is why he simply hands on tradition and does not write a life of Jesus. The Markan hypothesis went astray in conceiving this gospel as a life of Jesus written with either complete or partial historical consciousness, and interpreting it on these lines, on the sole ground that it only brings in the name Son of Man twice prior to the incident at Caesarea Philippi. The life of Jesus cannot be arrived at by following the arrangement of a single gospel, but only on the basis of the tradition which is preserved more or less faithfully in the earliest pair of synoptic gospels. Questions of literary priority, indeed literary questions in general, have, in the last resort, as Keim remarked long ago, nothing to do with the gaining of a clear idea of the course of events since the evangelists had not themselves a clear idea of it before their minds. It can only be arrived at hypothetically by an experimental reconstruction based on the necessary interconnection of the incidents. But who could possibly have had, in early times, a clear conception of the life of Jesus? Even its most critical moments were totally unintelligible to the disciples who had themselves shared in the experiences and who were the only sources for the tradition. They were simply swept through the events by the momentum of the purpose of Jesus. That is why the tradition is incoherent. The reality had been incoherent, too, since it was only the secret messianic self-consciousness of Jesus which created alike the events and their connection. Every life of Jesus remains, therefore, a reconstruction on the basis of a more or less accurate insight into the nature of the dynamic self-consciousness of Jesus which created the history. The people, whatever Mark may have thought, did not offer Jesus a messianic ovation at all. It was he who, in the conviction that they were wholly unable to recognize it, played with his messianic self-consciousness before their eyes, just as he did at the time after the sending forth of the disciples, when, as now, he thought the end at hand. It was in the same way, too, that he closed the invective against the Pharisees with the words, I say unto you, ye shall see me no more until ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. From Matthew chapter 23, verse 39. This saying implies his parousia. Similarly, he is playing with his secret in that crucial question regarding the messiahship in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. There is no question of disassociating the Davidic sonship from the messiahship. Footnote. That would have been to utter a heresy which would alone have sufficed to secure his condemnation. 
it would certainly have been brought up as a charge against him. End footnote. He asks only, how can the Christ, in virtue of his descent from David, be, as his son, inferior to David, and yet be addressed by David in the psalm as his Lord? The answer is, by reason of the metamorphosis and parousia in which natural relationships are abolished, and the scion of David's line, who is the predestined son of man, shall take possession of his unique glory. Far from rejecting the Davidic sonship in this saying, Jesus, on the contrary, presupposes his possession of it. That raises the question whether he did not really, during his lifetime, regard himself as a descendant of David, and whether he was not regarded as such. Paul, who otherwise shows no interest in the earthly phase of the existence of the Lord, certainly implies his descent from David. The blind man at Jericho, too, cries out to the Nazarene prophet as son of David, in Mark chapter 10, verse 47. But in doing so, he does not mean to address Jesus as Messiah, for afterwards, when he is brought to him, he simply calls him Rabbi, in Mark chapter 10, verse 51. And the people thought nothing further about what he had said. When the expectant people bid him keep silence, they do not do so because the expression, son of David, offends them, but because his clamor annoys them. Jesus, however, was struck by this cry, stood still and caused him, as he was standing timidly behind the eager multitude, to be brought to him. It is possible, of course, that this address is a mere mistake in the tradition, the same tradition which unsuspectingly brought the expression, son of man, at the wrong place. So much, however, is certain. The people were not made aware of the messiahship of Jesus by the cry of the blind man any more than by the outcries of the demoniacs. The entry into Jerusalem was not a messianic ovation. All that history is concerned with is that this fact should not be admitted on all hands. Except Jesus and the disciples, therefore, no one knew the secret of his messiahship even in those days at Jerusalem but the high priest suddenly showed himself in possession of it. How? Through the betrayal of Judas. For a hundred and fifty years, the question has been historically discussed why Judas betrayed his master. That the main question for history was, what he betrayed, was suspected by few, and they touched on it only in a timid kind of way. Indeed, the problems of the trial of Jesus may be said to have been non-existent for criticism. The traitorous act of Judas cannot have consisted in informing the Sanhedrin where Jesus was to be found at a suitable place for an arrest. They could have had that information more cheaply by causing Jesus to be watched by spies. But Mark expressly says that Judas, when he betrayed Jesus, did not yet know of a favorable opportunity for the arrest, but was seeking such an opportunity. Mark chapter 14 verses 10 and 11 and Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. In the betrayal, therefore, there were two points, a more general and a more special. The general fact by which he gave Jesus into their power, and the undertaking to let them know of the next opportunity when they could arrest him quietly without publicity. The betrayal by which he brought his master to death, in consequence of which the rulers decided upon the arrest, knowing that their cause was safe in any case, 
was the betrayal of the messianic secret. Jesus died because two of his disciples had broken his command of silence. Peter, when he made known the secret of the messiahship to the twelve at Caesarea Philippi, Judas Iscariot, by communicating it to the high priest. But the difficulty was that Judas was the sole witness. Therefore, the betrayal was useless so far as the actual trial was concerned, unless Jesus admitted the charge. So they first tried to secure his condemnation on other grounds, and only when these attempts broke down did the high priest put, in the form of a question, the charge in support of which he could have brought no witnesses. But Jesus immediately admitted it, and strengthened the admission by an allusion to his parousia in the near future as son of man. The betrayal and the trial can only be rightly understood when it is realized that the public knew nothing whatever of the secret of the messiahship. Footnote. When it is assumed that the messianic claims of Jesus were generally known during those last days at Jerusalem, there is a temptation to explain the absence of witnesses in regard to them by supposing that they were too much a matter of common knowledge to require evidence. But in that case, why should the high priest not have fulfilled the prescribed formalities? Why make such efforts first to establish a different charge? Thus, the obscure and unintelligible procedure at the trial of Jesus becomes, in the end, the clearest proof that the public knew nothing of the messiahship of Jesus. End footnote. It is the same in regard to the scene in the presence of Pilate. The people on that morning knew nothing of the trial of Jesus, but came to Pilate with the sole object of asking the release of a prisoner, as was the custom at the feast. From Mark chapter 15, verses 6 through 9. The idea then occurs to Pilate, who was just about to hand over, willingly enough, this troublesome fellow and prophet to the priestly faction, to play off the people against the priests and work on the multitude to petition for the release of Jesus. In this way he would have secured himself on both sides. He would have condemned Jesus to please the priests, and after condemning him would have released him to please the people. The priests are greatly embarrassed by the presence of the multitude. They had done everything so quickly and quietly that they might well have hoped to get Jesus crucified before anyone knew what was happening, or had had time to wonder at his non-appearance in the temple. The priests, therefore, go among the people, and induce them not to agree to the procurator's proposal. How? By telling them why he was condemned, by revealing to them the messianic secret. That makes him at once, from a prophet worthy of honor, into a deluded enthusiast and blasphemer. That was the explanation of the fickleness of the Jerusalem mob, which is always so eloquently described without any evidence for it except this single inexplicable case. At midday of the same day, it was the fourteenth Nisan, on the evening of which the paschal lamb was eaten, Jesus cried aloud and expired. He had chosen to remain fully conscious to the last. End of chapter 19